So this morning, we're going to talk about the question, does God exist? Can we make arguments or give reasons for thinking that God exists? And I've, there's a handout in the back. If you didn't grab one, be sure you grab one. It's on the music stand back there. There's a lot of places for you to take notes on that handout, just over the things that we cover. There's a lot of ways we could answer this question, does God exist? I'm only covering a few of them, just because we only have an hour. So I'm going to give you this morning sort of the five um, most used, well-known arguments from the history of Christianity. So these arguments are things Christians have been saying for centuries, hundreds of years. They've been saying, in answer to the question, does God exist? Yes. (laughs) And here's how we know. So we're just going to cover five. There's lots of other ones. And we may even have opportunity to discuss some of those this morning. I'd be glad to do that. But I think these are kind of the most most used, most well-known arguments from Christian history. And I think these five on your handout have a kind of particular popularity, not just among non-Christians, among people who believe God exists, but maybe a different God, but specifically among Christians who believe a specific God exists, the triune God of Scripture. So that's why I'm covering these five. I do want to say, as I've said, these aren't the only arguments we can make. And if you have a favorite argument that we didn't get to, I apologize. But I'd love to talk about that in discussion as we have time for that this morning. I also want to say, before we dive into each of these, it's not really like there's one and only one cosmological argument. It's actually more like it's a family of arguments. It's a way of reasoning, a way of arguing uh, for God's existence. And so, although your handout says the teleological argument, the cosmological argument, just realize it's a family of arguments. There's lots of ways we can kind of construct those arguments. Uh, And I'll try to show you a couple of those as we get to each one. So as we go through each of the five, I'm going to try and explain as briefly as I can, as simply as I can, what is this argument arguing? What are we saying when we say this? Then I'm going to try and illustrate it with just that same kind of logic or reasoning from something other than theology. So hopefully it makes sense kind of how we're arguing, how we're reasoning. And then I want to, after each one, each of the five, we'll pause and we'll just talk about, okay, let's, do we get that? What do we think about that? Let's evaluate it. Do we think this argument works? It's strong? What are its weaknesses? Uh, how might we strengthen it, maybe? Even if you have opinions on that, I'd love to hear them. So that's kind of what we're going to do. And we'll start with the first one on your handout, the teleological argument. Now, if you're concerned about the big words on your paper, be not afraid. I'm going to try and break those down. The reason I, I put them the way I did is because this is the way other people refer to these arguments. So if this is the first time that you're hearing this, I just want you to know if you walk out of this room and hear somebody else talking about it, they're going to use this language. So it's helpful to get familiar with this kind of language, but I'll hopefully make the big words simple. Teleological is really two words from Greek, telos and logos. Maybe you've even heard that last word, logos, which just means word. So if you think about John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. That, that word for word there is logos. Logos just means uh, a study of or a way of arguing or a rational way of speaking. Telos means purpose or end or goal or design even, right? So that's why I have on your handout in parentheses, design. The teleological argument is just the argument from design. So let me try to write it out simply. And and they're all basically going to be three statements. Uh, It's The way you do logic is it's two premises and a conclusion. So because one and two are true, three is true. So for the teleological argument, we're saying design, or you could write uh, complexity or purpose, implies a designer. That's not all there is to say. Two, the universe. You can write this on your handout if you want to. The universe manifests design. That means I look around and I see lots of purposeful, complex, designed things. And then here's the conclusion. Therefore, the universe has a capital D designer. 
So design implies a designer. If something's ordered, structured, complex, purposeful, someone made it that way. The universe, the world we live in, the cosmos, manifests really clear examples of, and I'll give you several, design, complexity, and purpose. Therefore, the universe has a designer. We call this designer God. You understand? This is what we're going to kind of do. I start with this one because I think this is probably the most uh, common, the one that makes the most sense to most people. Um, but basically, we're looking at the world. We're seeing it sure seems like there's order and design in this world that we're in. There must be a designer. Now, let me give you two illustrations. The first one, when this argument was made popular, was in the year 1802 by a man named William Paley in a book he wrote titled Natural Theology, and there was a subtitle. Paley says, if you're walking down the road and you come across a stone, you don't really think twice about that. You expect there to be stones along your way if you're just walking down the road. What if you're walking down the road and you see a watch, like a wristwatch? Now that's strange. You don't often find watches along roads. There must be a watchmaker. In a similar way, we live in this world that manifests clear evidence of design. There must be a designer. Or how about, how about this? Here's another illustration. You're walking in the Amazon jungle. So imagine the Amazon jungle here. <laughs> There's nobody grooming or keeping the Amazon jungle. It's not like the hedges out front at your house where you have to trim them or maybe your parents have to trim them every once in a while so they don't just get crazy. It's the Amazon jungle, so it's all crazy. Trees everywhere, vines everywhere, nobody mows the grass. And then in the middle of the forest, there's this really well-kept garden. And maybe you've got sort of roses and tulips and lilies all organized in different sections of the garden. And you realize there must be a gardener, someone who did this, who organized this like this in the midst of this jungle where all there is is chaos in comparison to the garden. Do you understand? So that's the logic. We're looking at something. We're seeing clear design. And we're saying, there must be a designer, which is God. Let me give you two, and then I'll pause for questions after this. Let me give you two examples of this argument from today. The first is by a guy named Michael Behe, who's written several books um, against Darwinian evolution. He's a scientist. Um, and he says, one of his sort of teleological arguments, one of his arguments from design, is called the argument from irreducible complexity. I'll write that out because it's not on your handout. Irreducible. Now you're going to see that I can't spell. I only appear smart. <laughs> irreducible complexity. That was a joke. You were supposed to laugh. Okay, that's fine though. You don't have to laugh. All right, Michael Behe says... <clears throat> that if you consider the world as a series of systems, now don't let that word scare you, systems just means there's multiple parts and all the parts taken together form this whole that is greater than all the parts. Let me give you some examples. Um, a mousetrap. You've probably seen a mousetrap. Maybe you've seen it in a cartoon um, like Tom and Jerry, right? So there's, there's a mousetrap that's meant to catch a mouse. Well, a mousetrap isn't actually one thing in one way. It's a number of things put together. So it's a, a metal bar. It's a spring. It's a plate of wood. And then there's a little trigger that if you put cheese on it, you'll have a little mouse run along, try to get the, tree, the cheese, and then snap the trap. And we'll stop there because we don't want to get morbid. But you understand, you need several different metal pieces, trigger, bar, spring, a piece of wood, maybe even a piece of cheese or peanut butter, and then you get a mousetrap. All these little parts added together form a system that is greater than the sum of the parts. If you just take one of those things, it's not useful to you. So Behe says, your body is just like a mousetrap. If you just take one part of your body, it, it doesn't actually it doesn't actually do anything. In fact, if you only take one piece, it could do you harm. It doesn't add value by itself. But instead, if you take the whole human body, you have what's called irreducible complexity. It's so complex 
Um, and it's fundamentally complex so that if you take one piece out, the system's no longer useful, just like the mousetrap. He gives an example from blood clotting. So yesterday I was shaving and I cut myself and that's what this bright red dot on my chin is. But the reason I'm not still bleeding is because of blood clotting. It's because human blood, when you're poked or cut, it, it's called it congeals or coagulates. It just means it hardens, it solidifies so that there's a, a scab forms and then you stop bleeding. Now, if that didn't happen, you would bleed until you died. But that's not it. Your blood could harden in your body right now and you would die. Because you need your blood to go to all parts of your body all the time and never to congeal, never to clot. But once you get poked, you need it to clot. So Michael Behe says, that is such a complex system that you need every piece to be working appropriately and every piece to be there. So you can't go from, let's say, slime or a different kind of thing like a fish into a human because the steps along the way, you don't have all the pieces of the system. So he's making an argument against evolution. Do you understand? If all I give you is the metal spring, you don't have a mousetrap. If I add the metal bar, you don't have a mousetrap. You need all four pieces, trigger, spring, bar, block of wood. Then you have a mousetrap. You can't go step by step. There's irreducible complexity. Let me give you one more example of, of a teleological argument. This is the argument from fine tuning. Maybe you've heard this language. Um, scientists will tell us that there are, in the world that we live in, there are these constants that we need, like the gravitational constant. Just curious, anybody know um, the rate of gravity off the top of your head? Some of the students, maybe? 9.8 Okay, I think when I was in high school it was 9.2, but maybe it's changed. <laughs> or maybe I'm misremembering. No, the point though is, it can't change. If that gravitational constant changes, we all either explode or we get smashed into each other. And actually, the, the range of acceptable life, uh, uh, the range of acceptable constants for there to actually be human life is so small that if you move it by just, I think it's 10 to the 60th power, which is a really big number, you can't have life on this side or on this side. Now that's just one example. There's lots of actually constants in the universe that are fixed numbers that if you move them slightly, there's no more room for life to exist. So scientists looking at this would say the universe appears to be so fine-tuned and so narrowly fine-tuned as to permit life to exist, such as the gravitational constant, that if we move it even just slightly to the left or to the right, there's no more, it's not possible for life to exist anymore. That sounds like purposeful design, does it not? So those are kind of two modern versions of a really old argument, the teleological argument which says, I look at the world, I see clear evidences of design, there must be a designer. That's the argument from design. And I gave you some illustrations of that, a watch on the beach, a garden in a forest, and I gave you two versions of it in our, in our day. Irreducible complexity of blo blood clotting and mouse traps, and then fine tuning of the universe. What questions do you have about that? Cam? Yeah. Obviously, this doesn't convince people. Yeah. Because I'm interested to know, like, in your study of this, like, what are some popular rebuttals to something like this? Because on the face of it, it sounds really convincing. Yeah. But knowing that there's people that aren't convinced by this. Yeah, that's a great question. And I want to, I want to land at the end of all five arguments. I want to land in, okay, if you're in here and you're a Christian, all of this stuff is very intuitive to you. You already know that God exists because you know him personally in relationship. He's spoken to you in his word. You pray to him. You hear him speak to you from the Bible, right? So this, like, it's a non-starter in one way for you. Praise God for that. I think that's a great thing. Why isn't it for everybody else? Like if it's this clear, why doesn't everybody believe that God exists? That's a teaser because I want to land there. But I want to go through all these arguments before we get there. So we're building up a case, okay? But I'll come back to it. 
Um, arguments against the design argument, though, specifically, you know, really, you're gonna, it's going to come down to, let's look at each individual thing I just said, and let's see if we can be really skeptical of it. So who says that uh, the blood clotting system is designed? Why, is that, why do you call that design? Now, I gave you answers to that question, but this is the way that people are going to go when they try to argue with it. Um, one thing I remind you of is that every piece of evidence, especially in science, uh, and especially when science uh, clearly evidences eternal um, consequences, like if God exists, you have to deal with him because he created you and you've sinned against him. You're not doing what he said. I'm not doing what he said. So I have to reckon with this God who owns me because he made me. Well, whenever we enter into that territory, um, it starts to make people who don't believe in God very nervous. Of course, understand, understandably so. It did to me 15 years ago before I was a Christian, right? Um, so I would just say all facts in science have interpretations. When I call blood clotting a designed system, I'm interpreting. When someone else calls it not a designed system, they're interpreting. Neither one of us gets priority in the realm of silence, science just because we're, we have interpretations. We should compare them and see who's more consistent, right? Does that make sense? So it's not simple enough just to say, okay, somebody disagrees with it. Where and why? And let's get to rock bottom. Are you just saying that because you don't want God to exist? Because if God exists, then you have to do what he says. And he might say some things you don't like. I have heard very, very intelligent atheists make arguments along those lines. Like, your God can't exist because he's mean. That's not an argument against the existence of God. Hang on a second. I'm, I'm mean sometimes, unfortunately. That doesn't mean I don't exist. I shouldn't be mean. And then I think we could also say, I don't think what you're judging God to be mean for is actually him being mean. So let's talk about that. There's a lot more to say there. Any other questions about the teleological argument? What is teleology? What does that mean? Somebody shout it out. Study of design. There you go. Yeah, study of design, study of purpose. Good. Let's move on to the second one. <clears throat> the second one on your handout is the cosmological argument. Now look what doesn't change. I already told you what logos means. So I'm just going to add a new Greek word, cosmos, which you're familiar with probably, the cosmos, that comes over to us in English. This word means uh, creation or world or universe, the things that have been made in the Bible. We can do this one in three steps again. <clears throat> and it's going to end with a therefore, of course. So the first step is whatever begins to exist Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause, capital C. Same thing we, we said with designer, we call this cause God. So three steps again. At every point, you could say, I want to take some issue with that. And that's what people do when they argue over these, these arguments. But this is the basic argument. The cosmological argument, <clears throat> and there's lots of different ways to, like I said, there's lots of different ways to frame up a cosmological argument. I'll give you a couple. Um, but basically, the reasoning is only an uncaused cause could bring the universe into existence. Here's the rule of thumb. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Everybody say that. Out of nothing, nothing comes. It sounds so simple and so intuitive. But think about it for a second. How do you get something when all you have is nothing? That's a really big question. The answer is you can't. Because out of nothing, nothing comes. There must be something for there to ever be anything. God exists, therefore the universe can exist. The only other answer to the question is either nothing ever, which most people wouldn't say, or the universe is eternal, which most people also wouldn't say. Even secular people would not say the universe has always been. 
So that's premise one. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe begins to exist. I'm sorry, it's premise two. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, some people will say, especially if you meet a snarky atheist, and I love snarky atheists because I once was one, they will say, all right, who created God? And I just want to say that misunderstands the argument. I love you. I appreciate that you're thinking if that's what you're doing. If you're just trying to catch me in a trap, then I don't appreciate that as much. But um, if you're thinking and you're really trying to understand how can this work from my perspective, well, let's go back to premise one. Whatever begins to exist, God doesn't begin to exist. So there is no creator of the creator. That's not an argument against the cosmological argument. Let me give you some examples of this kind of reasoning. You're driving down the road. You were walking previously. Now you're driving. And you see smoke on the side of the highway. You assume, just intuitively, there's a fire somewhere producing that smoke. Because that's how fire and smoke work. Smoke is the effect. Fire is the cause. If I see the effect, I can assume there's a cause. I see smoke. I assume there's fire. I might not be able to see the fire. And in lots of cases, when you see smoke, you can't see the fire. But you know there's a fire. Similarly, you walk into a room like this one, there's a pool table, and a ball is moving across the table. You assume somebody moved that ball. You walk in and you see motion, you assume there's a mover, because that's how motion works. Now, someone could have hit it with a cue, uh, with a, a stick, right? Or with another ball, or there's lots of ways it could be in motion, but there must be something that moved that ball. Another example, if my two-year-old Phoebe walks in, to the room and I'm not here, you say, that small child has a parent. Like, that small child came from a mother. So when you see Phoebe, you realize she's contingent is what it's called. She didn't have to exist. But if she exists now, you know that her mother exists. Her mother is necessary, is what it's called, for her to exist. That's the argument from necessity and contingency. So if the universe is contingent, like it doesn't have to exist, it began to exist, there must be some necessary being that brings the universe into existence, God. If the universe is in motion, I'm just going backwards through the illustrations I just gave you. If the universe is in motion, there must be some unmoved mover who moved it, God. If the universe is, is affected, if it comes into existence, there must be a cause, and specifically an uncaused cause. The unmoved mover, the uncaused cause, he's God. What questions do you have about that one, the cosmological argument? We're doing great on time, so feel free to jump in if you have a question. Okay, but you're really not going to want to talk after this one. Let's do the third one. <laughs> this is the most philosophical, but it's a really uh, important argument in the history of Christian thought, so I want to give it to you anyway. Number three on your handout is the ontological argument. And I, I put in parentheses there, perfection. Ontological, again, we've done logos, comes from the words ontos, logos. What does ontos mean? It means being or essence or nature. So, something's ontology is everything that, that's essential to that thing to be that thing, which means if you remove this, it's not that thing anymore. So if you have a dog, I had a dog once, if he walked in the room and you took away his dogness, you'd say, that's not a dog anymore. Does that make sense? His ontology involves him being a dog. And there's lots of different features that make a dog a dog, like he barks. He has fur. I realize you can shave a dog and he doesn't have fur, but he doesn't stop being a dog. But now we're doing ontology, do you see? So we're asking the question, what is it that makes that thing what it is? What is its essence? What is its ontology? Okay, the ontological argument really comes, uh, at least it's most popularized from a guy in the year 1078, so a thousand years ago, named Anselm of Canterbury. And I'm just going to write a quote on the board in this one. And let's see if we can make the argument from this. So Anselm starts with, it's in a book called The Proslogion in 1078. He starts with, God cannot 
be conceived not to exist. Existence is essential to who God is. Then he says, God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. I'll read it back if you can't read my writing so you can write it yourself. God cannot be conceived not to exist. God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. And then his third, that which can be conceived not to exist is not God. You can see it's kind of bookended. So we're saying the same thing twice in different ways with the beginning and the end of this argument. But notice how Anselm's ontological argument really pivots around this center. (coughs) Who is God or what is God? Anselm says, God is that than which nothing greater can be conceived. Which means God is the greatest being there is. He's perfect in the highest, best, most wonderful, glorious, majestic sense of that word. He's perfect. This is his perfection. If you take something away, he's not God. If you add something to, he's not God. God is that greatest being which you can add nothing to and take nothing away or he stops being God. He's perfect. And Anselm says, because he's perfect, he can't be conceived not to exist. If God didn't exist, he wouldn't be as perfect as he is. If you took away existence, or you even conceived of him as not existing, you're not any longer conceiving of God, which is what he says down here. If you can think about it as not existing, like, like you could probably think about me not existing. Well, that's because I'm not God. Anselm says, you can't think about God not existing. Existence is core to who God is. It is more perfect to exist than to not exist. So Anselm says, the concept of God requires existence, which logically forces that conclusion. I'm going to say that again. The concept of God requires existence, which logically forces that conclusion. This is a really (laughs) philosophical, hard argument to understand, especially if it's your first exposure to it. So let me try to give you an illustration. I'll give you two. Think of a cheeseburger without cheese. You go to Five Guys and you say, I want a cheeseburger, no cheese on it. What do they say to you? That's a hamburger, bro. That's not a cheeseburger. Cheese is essential. It's an ontological part of a cheeseburger. You can't have a cheeseburger without cheese. In the same way, Anselm is saying, you can't have God without existence. Or what about a thrift store? You walk into a thrift store and you want to buy some used clothing, some antique that's been well used and well loved, as they say. You walk in and they say, oh, we only have new things. We don't have anything pre-owned. It's not a thrift store. A thrift store, by definition, has only used things. See, a cheeseburger has cheese. A thrift store has used things you can buy. It's ontological. It's part of its essence. If you take it out, you don't have that thing anymore. Anselm is saying, God cannot be conceived not to exist. God is that, then which nothing greater can be conceived. That which can be conceived not to exist is not God. You see it? What questions do you have about that one? That's the ontological argument. While you're thinking of your questions, I'll pause here to say, we could do a whole hour or a whole semester on any one of these things. I'm just giving them to you as simply as I can and somewhat quickly so that we can talk about them. So if if you're sitting there thinking, ah, I don't get this, well, let's talk, right? What's your question? Or think about it and ask me tomorrow, (laughs) you know? I mean, we can talk about this. So I just want you, don't feel pressured to understand these things instantly. They're really big, weighty, heavy things that people have been talking about for hundreds of years. And you could spend a whole semester on them. Becca? Why is existence essential to God and not essential to God? Yes, great question. Why is it, I'm just gonna repeat it. For anybody who didn't hear it, why is existence essential to God and not 
other things. Did I get that right? The answer is in premise two. God is that being than which nothing greater can be conceived. Which is greater, to exist or to not exist? To exist. To exist is better than to not exist. Well, if God is the greatest being there is, then existence must be essential to him. That's part of Becca's question. The other part is, why is existence not essential to everything else? Well, the answer is, you could have not existed. In God's free choice to create everything, he freely chose to create you and me. But we're not necessary. We didn't have to exist. Now, I've just told you something very, very controversial and very much a minority opinion in the world today because the world wants you to believe you had to exist and you're the center of the world. So if you're not getting your way, you got to let somebody know. Tweet it, you know, whatever it is, right? But that's just not true. And life is actually a lot simpler and happier if you don't think that. Because then when something thwarts you, you can realize, oh, that's right, this is not about me, it's about God. Everything that happens is about God getting glory and Him using everything that happens for my good. And I may not be able to see how that works out in every instance. I certainly don't. But it's true. And I can counsel myself with those truths. That's why I get so irritated all the time, right? Because I need to remember, this isn't actually about me. So existence is not essential to anything other than God because God is the only necessary being. The universe didn't have to come into existence. God was free to create everything, including you. Does that make sense? Keep thinking about it. What's your question? Yeah. Tell me your name. Lara. Lara. Okay. Yes. Yes. Good. Good. Good question. So, Lara is saying, somebody comes to me and says, God doesn't exist. Like, I don't believe in God. Why are you telling me he can't not exist? Two answers. My first is, this particular argument is based on a definition of God. Okay? That's core to the argument. God is the greatest being. The greatest being implies existence. Like, you can't have the greatest being without existence. So, so one answer is, it's just part of the way this argument works. And then the other answer is, this is why a lot of people don't use this argument in conversation. One, as you've all clearly felt by now, it's actually really hard to understand. It's very philosophical. Um, but two is, yeah, you, when someone comes to you and says, I don't think God exists, um, it's not always the most strategic thing to say, God can't not exist. You know, so there may be other ways you have that conversation. That's not to say it's not a formal valid, sound argument. I think it is. But it may not be persuasive or convincing to everyone. And we'll come back to that. So good question, Lara. Let's do the fourth one. The moral argument. The moral argument. We're going to get rid of our logos now. The moral argument is three steps as well. You may be familiar with this one from someone like C.S. Lewis. Who knows C.S. Lewis? Who's read Mere Christianity? Okay, great, this argument is in that book. So, the first premise, if, I'm gonna abbreviate, you don't have to, objective, moral, values, and duties exist, then God exists. I'll come back to why. Objective, moral, values, and we could say duties, do exist. Three, therefore, God exists. So it's, it's similar to the arguments we've been considering in a lot of ways in that we consider our experience and we recognize something to be true from our experience. And that is... I'll give you a weaker form and a stronger form. More, a weaker form of this argument is every human being has a sense of what's right and wrong. You know it from your own experience. You have that little twinge, that Jiminy Cricket, if you will, 
in your mind that says, yeah, you shouldn't do that. Some people call it a conscience. Every human being has that sense. Well, who put that sense there? God did, the creator, right? That's the weaker form. The stronger form is that sense, and this is where C.S. Lewis goes, that sense that you have is because there is a moral right and wrong. Now, let me write that out. The sense that we have is of right and wrong. We have this sense because there is right and wrong. That's why it's on your handout. Do you see the difference? The capital letter, it's a big difference. The difference is this one is objective. It doesn't depend on what you think or what I think. This one is subjective. It's the opposite. It does depend on what you think or what I think. I am subjectively thinking this is wrong to do or this is right to do. Now, I could be wrong or right about that. But even what I just said there assumes that there's an objective moral value or duty. I should do some things and I should not do other things. And same for you. So if objective moral values and duties exist, then God exists. Objective moral values and duties do exist, therefore God exists. How do you prove this to someone? I said this in week one. Take their watch. If somebody comes up to you and says, God exists, just take their watch and walk away. Don't actually do that. That's a joke. Um, the point is, even someone who says, I don't think God exists, is not living consistently with what they say. If God doesn't exist, there's no reason I can't take your watch, other than you don't like it. But there's a difference between things you don't like and things people should not do. Okay, so there's a difference between liking strawberry ice cream, which I do so much, and not murdering people. One is a preference. One is an objective moral value and duty that I'm to love my neighbor, which means not murdering them. They might not like strawberry ice cream, but murdering them is not an appropriate way to respond. You understand there's a difference between preference and objective moral value and duty. I think, I think in practice, almost everyone you encounter will acknowledge this. In fact, I would say in practice, everyone you encounter will acknowledge this. Nobody actually lives like God doesn't exist. Lots of people say God doesn't exist. But the point is, are you living as if that's true? I know I wasn't all those years ago. I wanted people to treat me with respect and dignity, and I thought I should do the same thing. What questions do you have about that one? Douglas. So I, I have seen some people, I think they're called, I think they're called moral nihilists. Okay, yep. Believe that there is an objective, only subjective. Yes. Right. Yes, yeah, totally. How do you respond to that? Yeah, totally. So my response is similar to what I've been saying. Um, someone saying they believe something and then someone living their life, you should test whether those things are consistent. We do this with each other as Christians. You say you follow Jesus. You should not move in with your girlfriend. That would be inconsistent with following Jesus. Marry her and then move in together. Praise God, that's glorious. Right? That's just an example. I'm saying if we, if we say we follow Jesus, then we should expect ourselves by God's grace through the power of his spirit to do what Jesus says. Or at the very least to repent when we don't. To be grieved when we don't. It's similar for the moral nihilist. The nihilist comes to you and says, there are no objective moral values and duties. And I want to say, how about I steal your watch? No, I'm kidding. But the, the point is, though, like, are you really living like you believe that? I don't think you are. I think you're very kind to your wife or your husband. And I'm glad you're, you do that. I don't actually want you to be consistent with what you think. Does that make sense? Like, I don't want a moral nihilist to live like a moral nihilist. I'm just pointing to the fact that they're not and saying, there's a better way. You do that because God exists. You do that because God made you in his image and he put you in his world and he gave you a conscience which speaks to you about what's right and wrong and you don't do what's wrong and you do do what's right. And then here's the other thing. Sometimes you do what's wrong and I do what's wrong. Sometimes you don't do what's right and I don't do what's right. And what do we do in those cases? 
Well, the answer is we need our sins to be forgiven. And now we're talking about Jesus, which is exactly where I'm trying to go. Because I love people, and I want them to love Jesus. Right? So it'd be something like that. Maybe it's a longer conversation. Maybe there's different words I use. Maybe there's a different tone somewhat, depending on the person or my relationship with them. But that's the substance of what I'm doing when I talk with people. Like, hey, I'm really glad that you don't live like that's true. I'm really glad you haven't punched me in the face right now. I would never punch you in the face right now. I think that's wrong to do. And I think you think it's wrong to do too. Why? Because God exists. Right? Does that help? Okay. Um, any other questions about anything so far? Teleological argument from design, cosmological argument from cause, ontological argument from perfection, moral argument, arguments from objective moral values and duties. Can you give an example of subjective versus objective? Yes, I can try. Um, objective and subjective are opposites, uh, which maybe you can hear from the words. Objective means there's a standard outside of me that I have to submit to. It's not based on my preference. So that's me liking uh, strawberry ice cream is subjective. You don't have to like strawberry ice cream. I mean, it's, it'd be great if you did because it's awesome. But that's my opinion. That's subjective. It's not my opinion that we shouldn't murder people. That's God's command. That's objective. It's outside of both of us. It's an unchanging moral standard, a law, we might say, that we should all submit to. Does that make sense? Okay. Let's do a transcendental argument just in light of time. So the transcendental argument, I think it's useful in light of the four we've covered so far to, deci- to, to discuss, discern, decide where did we land? Where have we ended up in light of all of this? We have an uncaused cause, an unmoved mover, a designer. We have a standard by which objective moral values and duties come. We have a perfect being. How much have I not said there? Turns out a lot. Turns out a lot, right? So. Just to make the, the point, um, a Muslim friend of yours could walk in the room and use, I think, every one of the four arguments that we've covered so far. I just think we should think about that. Wouldn't it be better if there were an argument only Christians could use? We don't only talk to atheists, right? We do talk to atheists. And I think in varying ways, lots of these arguments can be very helpful as you're discussing them with friends. Well, the transcendental argument is the fifth and final argument we're going to cover, which I think is distinct to Christianity. And the transcendental argument says, logic, science, and morals. You'll see I've, I've put this after the moral argument on purpose. All presuppose the existence of God. So, This is a different kind of arguing, which we just have to fix clearly in our minds. So far, the first four arguments we've covered are what's called either deductive, which means um, if something is true, then something else is true. If X is true, then Y is true. X is true, therefore Y is true. That's a deductive argument. An example, all men are mortal. Ben Hamilton is a man, therefore Ben Hamilton is mortal. That's deductive arguing. That's one kind of arguing. So you're thinking um, cosmological argument is just like that. Moral argument I framed just like that. Then there's inductive arguing. Deductive and inductive. We're just doing logic. It's okay. There's inductive arguing, which says um, if y equals x and z equals x and a equals x, then I can expect b to equal x. So example, I have a bag of coins. You don't know what's in the bag. I reach my hand in. I pull out a penny. I reach my hand in again, I pull out another penny. I reach my hand in again, I pull out another penny. I reach my hand in again, what do you think I'm going to pull out? A penny. I might not pull out a penny, but given that I pulled out three and I have a bag of coins, it's very likely that I'll pull out a penny. That's inductive reasoning. So far what we've done, that'd be kind of like the design, ar- design argument. 
So far what we've done are deductive and inductive arguments. We're about to do a third kind of thing, which is called transcendental. That's where it gets its name. Transcendental arguing says, um, and I framed the moral argument like this also, if x then y, or sorry, if y then x, x therefore y. Squinted that for me. So we're looking at this relationship right here. We're looking at preconditions. If we have x, we must have y. We have x, so we have y. I'll give you an example. Uh, I told you about the fine tuning of the universe. What are all the things, just shout something out. What are all the things that are required for there to be life on Earth? I'll give you one. There's got to be air to be able to breathe. What else? Water. water. We've got to be able to drink water. Light. Light. Yes. Good. A narrow range of temperature. Yes. Temperature. Exactly. If it's too hot, life can't exist. If it's too cold, life can't exist. Gravity. Yep. Something's going to keep us on the world. If we float out into space, there will be no air and we won't be able to breathe and we'll die. Does that make sense? What are we doing here? We're doing transcendental logic. You see it? What are all the things that are necessary for life to exist? Life exists. I'm looking at you. Therefore, all those things. That's transcendental logic. Do you see it? Okay. The transcendental argument takes lots of things, but I'll just give you three. Logic, science, and morals. In order to have them, God must exist, and a specific God, the triune God of Scripture the God of the Bible. Not just any God will do. This is not generic or vanilla theism. It's not sufficient for us as Christians to just say, some God exists. Might be Allah. Might be Yahweh. Might be Brahma. No, no, no. We're arguing for a very specific God, the triune God of Scripture. Only Yahweh. Only Jesus, right? So the reason for that which is going to take me a lot longer to explain than I have time for. So if you have questions about this, let's talk afterwards. The reason for that is because God is Trinity. The one thing that's distinctive to our God, other than the fact that he exists and other gods don't, is that he's Trinity. The reason you can have logic and science and morals is because God is Trinity. So um, let's just do science. We'll just do science. Um, Science, broadly conceived, is three things. You need to have something that's observable, something that's repeatable, and something that's measurable. You're going to perform an experiment. You need to be observable. I can look at it. I can see when things change and don't change. You need to be able to measure it. I can see how much they change by. And you need to be able to repeat it. I can do it again. That's, that's the basis of science. It's called... Um, the uniformity of nature. Nature is uniform. I can expect, in the broadest terms, that yesterday is going to look a lot like today. Gravity is going to keep working. It's going to be, hopefully, as cold as it was yesterday, but maybe not. Uh, maybe it'll be 100 like it was earlier this week. But notice what you can't say. You can't say that because yesterday was 70 degrees, therefore today is going to be 70 degrees. That doesn't follow. So science can't prove science. You'll often hear people say that you can only know what's true because of science. And the problem with that is that you can't prove that's true with science. I can only know what's true because of science. How do you prove that with science? Right? So it's inconsistent. You can know things are true without science, like the fact that science tells you true things. Okay? You actually can't know that... Um, that today is going to be like yesterday, or that tomorrow is going to be like today, with science only. How can you know that? A good, unchanging God, who has a purpose in everything that takes place, who is manifesting his glory in all the things that happen to you and me, who loves us and wants us to continue living and glorifying him, to do what he says and to glorify him, to love one another and to glorify him. That'll account for the uniformity of nature. 
That's just an example. I could do the same thing with logic, and I sort of did the same thing with morals when we talked about the moral argument. You noticed I gave you a weaker version of the moral argument and a stronger version of the moral argument. The stronger version is a transcendental version. It's saying in transcendental logic, if y then x, x therefore y. If morals, then God. Morals, therefore God. Does that make sense? Um, what questions do you have about that one? What questions do you have about the transcendental argument for the existence of God, or TAG for short? Let me do it with logic. <clears throat> what is logic? Traditionally, logic um, is three laws. The law of identity, that A equals A. The law of non-contradiction, that A does not equal not A. And then the law of excluded middle, that A is either true or false. It's not both, it's not something in between. You don't have to remember that. My point is, what are the laws of logic? Do they exist in the world? Can you touch the laws of logic? Somebody shout it out if you know. Can you touch the laws of logic? No. You can't touch the laws of logic. They're immaterial. They don't exist in the world. Do the laws of logic ever change? Is it ever possible for A to be both true and false? No, they don't change. Do the laws of logic apply in some places and not others? Is there anywhere on earth that A could be not A? Shout it out if you know. You think there's anywhere logic is different? No. Yeah, exactly. That's right. So that means the laws of logic are immaterial, can't touch them, unchanging. It's not one way yesterday and a different way today, and universal. They're not the case here and not elsewhere, or vice versa. Can you think of anything else that's immaterial, unchanging, and universal? God. That's exactly right. From where do the laws of logic come? They must come from the mind of God, which corresponds to God's nature as truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. God is truth. God is the standard of what's true and what's false, of what's right and what's wrong. He never changes. He is everywhere present. Everything comes from him. He's the creator of all of us and everyone you ever meet. You can't see him or touch him. He's immaterial. That can account for the laws of logic. Turns out nothing else can. Chance won't work, because then they could change. Social convention won't work, like we all just agreed on the laws of logic, because somebody somewhere else might not agree on them. See, the laws of logic correspond to reality, to the world that we live in, so they don't change. Does that make sense? If the laws of logic, then God, the laws of logic, therefore God. There's only one explanation for these things that exist in our world. It's the triune God of Scripture. Turn to Romans 1 in your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 1 in your Bibles. I want to end here. In light of Cam's question, which I love, um, he's hearing, and I think this was after just the first one, he's heard the teleological argument, and he's like, this makes so much sense to me. Why would anybody not believe this? That's the question I want to answer. So I told you at the beginning, this is just one kind of a whole family of five sets of arguments. We could have done dozens of other arguments. Um, I'll just rattle off a couple. The resurrection argument. Jesus rose from the dead. Therefore, everything he says is true. He says he's God. Therefore, God exists. The revelation argument. God has spoken in his word with clarity. 
In order to speak, he needs to exist. Therefore, God exists. Uh, how about the personal experience argument? How many of you know God in a personal, real way, and you meet with him every morning? You pray to him, and he speaks to you through your word. You actually aren't like you were 10 years ago. He's changing you every day in a real, vital, dynamic relationship. He must exist if he relates to you, right? So that, and those are just three quick ones. We could do more. Um, what about people's sense of religion? Why is it that every culture in the history of the world has had some sort of religious commitment? Why are people born in some places in the world today and they just assume that there's something greater than them, something supernatural? Maybe it's because he has put eternity in the heart of man, as the preacher in Ecclesiastes says. And we're all just groping around blindly trying to find him. That's what Paul says in Acts 17. So lots of arguments we could have covered. Um, some arguments we did cover. If the case is so sound, why doesn't everybody believe? Paul answers that question in Romans 1. I'll read verse 18 to 21 probably. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Pause right there. Verse 20. Sometimes people will come to Romans 1 verse 20 and say, there's the cosmological argument. I, can, I understand how the logic is similar. In the things that have been made, the creation, we can see the creator. Sure. It's a little bit more specific than just a vague cosmological argument because we're talking about a specific God. When Paul says in verse 19, what can be known about God is plain, who's he talking about? Who's God to Paul? Yahweh, or Jesus, right? Yeah, that's right. So God is saying, I'm sorry, Paul is saying, God is saying through Paul, Paul is saying, God is making himself known to everyone that exists in his creation. He's made them in his image. He's put them in his world. Even if they're nihilists, they're constantly living as if God exists, though they say he doesn't. So, verse 20, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So Paul says, everybody knows God. That's what Romans 1, 18 to 21 says. Everyone knows God. You know God. Everyone you talk to knows God. The question of the book of Romans is, in what way do you know God? Do you know him in his wrath only? Or do you know him in Jesus Christ? In his grace? In the forgiveness of sins? In reconciliation? That's what we want to see happen. That's what, by God's Spirit, we need to see happen. You have to be born again. I trust many of you here are. I'm just saying, when we talk to people, we're not going around trying to give them more evidence of the God they're not sure of. We're going around saying as gently and respectfully as we can, you know God exists. You just don't like the God that exists because you love sin. And that's why you'll ignore all five of these arguments. Because you're what Paul says, suppressing the truth. Just like me, friend. I once wanted to be my own God because I thought I knew better than God. And I didn't like God's moral standards for my life. So I didn't want anything to do with him. If he exists, I have to deal with him as my creator. I have to listen to what he says. I don't want to do that. I don't do that. And so I need to be forgiven by God in Jesus. Jesus Christ died for sinners and he rose from the dead that he might justify his people, right? That's our message. That's what we're going with. So why don't people believe? It's because of sin. It's because people, by nature, suppress the truth and unrighteousness. 
Now, I realize that's not going to happen at a conscious level. Maybe it's a more subconscious thing. I understand that. But I'm saying theologically, what Paul is telling us in Romans 1 is that this is what's happening with everybody we deal with. We may not use that language. We may not walk up to people and say, you're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. There's certainly a rude way to do that. I'm not suggesting that you do that. But we do want to see the spiritual reality behind what we see is right here in Romans chapter 1. Why don't people believe? Why aren't they convinced by the argument for design, from cause, or from God's perfection, or from morality, or from logic and science? It's because then they'll have to deal with God. So go, talk to people, use these arguments if you think it'll be helpful. Do it in gentleness and respect, of course, always. Do it in a way that honors Christ when you speak about Christ. But speak about Christ, because that's the only hope we have. I'll stick around if you have more questions, but let's pray and head out for those that need to. Father, we thank you for this message of the gospel even from Romans chapter 1, where things seem darkest. We trust that what you say is true, that we all once were dead in trespasses and sins, in which we once walked. here pretended like you didn't exist. We know, we're convinced by your word that we were suppressing the truth. We know that there are many in our lives, whether they be coworkers, neighbors, family members, who are walking in the way we once did. Maybe there are some in this room. We pray that you would give grace, that you would have mercy on us, that you would help us to be convinced that what you say is true, to be persuaded that you are there and you're not silent. You've made yourself clearly known in your word. Would you help us, Lord, to walk in your ways, to believe in your Son, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen.